0: Data's evolutionary journey started out like all journeys, non-existent. However, the evolution of data has been exponential since the dawn of the internet and the birth of the companies that followed. Fast forward a couple decades to today and you may notice that data is everywhere. Rafael Marty, VP of Research and Intelligence at Forcepoint talks about this evolution, his own journey into tech, the serial founder experience and much more on this episode of IT Visionaries. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com platform.
1: Welcome to IT Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org. And we have in studio, Rafi, what's going on? Hey, how's it going? It's great to have you. This is going to be fun. You have a really interesting background and you have a really interesting role at Forcepoint. But before we get into all of that, how did you get into technology in the first place? Oh,
2: good question. I guess when I grew up, I always had a knack for um, disassembling electric devices, even like, like irons and whatever, just <laughs> plucked them into the outlet and fuses would go off and sometimes get hurt. I was just fascinated by these machines. And uh, at some point, like second grade, my best friend uh, got an Apple II and that was just fantastic. We started programming logo on that thing. And I remember I, I was fascinated that if you multiplied a number with a number that was smaller than one, so 0.8, it would actually be smaller, the result, than what you started with. And that was just weird to me. I still remember that. Um, because when you multiply something, you should get more. Yeah, but yeah, you got, totally yeah. Right. So somehow, all this stuff just fascinated me. with these solving puzzles, understanding systems. So that's how I got into
1: that, I guess. And flash forward to now. So you are the chief research and intelligence officer. What goes into that? Well, um, we're uh,
2: Forcepoint is a, one of the large security firms, and we have a number of different products, from firewalls to endpoint and insider threat protection tools, and so on. And all of these tools you can think of as basically engines that act on certain data and certain signals, right? Like a firewall looks at network traffic and will block it based on certain conditions. Um, But all these products also need a certain amount of security, intelligence, or knowledge that goes into them. So my group basically provides all of that content. So they're they're surveying the internet and the whatever darker corners of the internet as well to understand what are the latest attacks, what are the latest attackers, the, the, the campaigns that are active, and build content for the different systems to actually block those kinds of things. And that's, that's sort of the, um, a lot of machinery we've built where, where we help all the different products be configured to secure the intelligence. Um, but then there's another th- side, which is much more interesting, which is understanding human behavior. And we're doing a lot of research, call it artificial intelligence, that we're applying to sort of characterizing the behavior of systems and the behavior of humans. And we're applying that to all of our products in the end.
1: So... Is Forcepoint X Labs, is this like a special group? Like what's, how, how are you involved in that? Do you lead that? Like what is, what is yeah, that? Yeah, that that's the department I run.
2: And that's all of the research and intelligence people, basically. that We we have like seven locations around the world where these people sit. There are security researchers. Uh, there's a psychologist on the team. There's counterintelligence people. So people that help us understand the security landscape and build these protection um, content for all the different products.
1: And then, so how much do you work with, you know, the CIO, the CTO, the CISO? Like, how do you work with other senior leaders? Um, Are you creating product? Are you working with customers? So we are um, involved in a lot of the strategic
2: decisions and understanding, well, where's the market going? So we're providing sort of input on, okay, what's possible from an AI or from an analytics standpoint? Where is the market going? Where are the attackers going? How can we prevent these things? So we're, we're often at the table when there's strategic conversations um it's almost we're, we're an extension of the office of the cto so we're we're putting we have a lot of weight there and a lot of these conversations kind of like the cto itself does and then interacting with actually almost every single um leader in the company cmo quite a lot on how do we message this stuff how do we build frameworks and then what are use cases and how how do we bundle that up in a way that makes sense to the security uh, audience um, working with the chief legal officer quite a bit because there is a lot of conversation around privacy and what is what are we allowed to do? Right, we like as researchers, we want to see all the data as much as we can. Yeah, we if we didn't have to care about PII, um, it would be nice if we didn't have to. Yeah, it sounds but great. But obviously we have to, right? Um, and we have to walk within these legal boundaries. So we have a lot of conversations there. How do we build systems with a privacy first approach? And what does that mean? What are the the contracts we need to have in place with our customers and, and what do we have to do internal that my researchers can access some of the data. And there's all kinds of process involved in that. So I, I work with pretty much every single leader in the company,
1: which is really, really fun as well. That is really fun. When you're talking to them, are you sharing the the ways that you can kind of cross-reference or, or draw insights from your background in Shooting crossbow and air rifle for the Swiss, Swiss national team.
2: <laughs> um, you dug up quite a bit on my background. Um, <laughs> you know, it's interesting. Like, um, target shooting is uh, is a very individual sport. And I did that from like 12 to age, age 12 to like 26. And I was in the national team for a while. And I think it just teaches you to deal with stressful situations, right? Yeah. Because you're on your own, you're sitting there, and it could be in a board meeting. Now you're, you're put on a spot, you have to like, deliver this content and you might be really nervous because your job might be on the line and how do you present this? And it, it just teaches you that, you know what, like being the present, you, you know your stuff, right? Like you're trained for this, right? you have a career that gave you the spot that you're sitting in. Um, so that you're probably qualified to be there. And so just focus on the moment. And I think that the biggest lesson, which is kind of interesting that I learned is uh, have fun. Yeah. no matter what it is, right? Like if you don't have fun anymore, you're in the wrong, wrong place. And it's actually, uh, I, I realized this from a 16 year old athlete on my team. And I coached the national team in Switzerland and she was just always so happy. Yeah. And at some point I'm like at a, this international competition, I'm like, are you not nervous? She's like, of course I am, but I'm looking really forward to this. I'm so excited and I'm having fun. I'm like, Oh, boom. Yes. this makes sense. Right. Where you see all these other athletes, like, like super focused and are trying to like come out of their best. And they're, it seems like they're not having fun, but the ones that are actually having fun
1: are probably doing better. If you, if you watch that at some point. Yeah. 100%. I, th- I think there's like a corollary where it's like, you either need to have nobody believe in you or one person to believe in you, right? It's like if you have nobody, then it's like it's you against the world, but if like that one person you can kind of draw from that, yeah, yeah. so you spent a few years at Splunk kind of early days, right super early, yeah
2: <laughs> I don't know like six fifty sixty people in a in a small office in San Francisco is really fun
1: <laughs> yeah we and we've had um a bunch of Splunk leaders on i t visionaries recently, huge focus on big data yeah think that this is clearly going to be something um, with the amounts of data being, being accessed every single day that if you're not a data organization, uh, you better buckle up. I'm curious, just like, what are your kind of, uh, where's, the, where's the market now on big data and, and how's that linked to security? You know, it's interesting. Like, Uh, When I started
2: my career in the early 2000s, we did big data back in the day, right? We we looked at all this, like Splunk, right? We looked at all this data coming in from these IT systems. We didn't call it big data. It was just data analytics, math, (laughs) and statistics, right? Um, I think back then people were like, oh, yeah, okay, sure. Look at your log files and figure out what your systems are doing. But it was a very, very niche thing. And if you look today, everything is focused around the data. I think... It's a little dangerous. We, I think we over-rotated a little bit too much on relying on the data. And we're not honest with ourselves anymore in terms of, well, there is bias in the data, right? Yeah. There's bias in the algorithms we have. But I, but there is some fantastic use cases we couldn't solve if we didn't have all the data. Uh, look at all the, the deep learning things that have been happening over the last five, six years. Uh, speech recognition, image recognition. I, that is only possible because we have huge amounts of data that we can draw from to train these systems. So um, I think there's 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 so many problems we can solve with looking at the data. We have to be a little careful. History is not a predictor of the future. Yeah, um, great point. But um, there's there's so many things we can learn from it, and security is not any different from from any of the other disciplines, right? Like looking at the data, what happened, learning from it. Uh, profiling things. That's just more and more where we have to go to to even get ahead of the attackers out
1: there. If you don't do that, we we have no chance. Let's talk about the attackers because (laughs) I think that, you know, what are some of the things that you've seen from your vantage point on what's going on with, uh, I don't want to say your customers, but, but just with the general market on the huge problems that you're seeing kind of every day that people are really concerned about.
2: Yeah, it's interesting uh, looking at what customers come back with, the problems they need they need help with. I think there's definitely a, an increased focus on what is known as sort of the insider threat problem. For quite a while, people were kind of laughing at that. you are know, like, yeah, sure, it, it is a problem, but the external attackers are much bigger of a problem. That has shifted quite a bit, I think. And um, I think the way we look at it is, look, um, in the end, what really matters is when your critical data or IP is, is being touched um, and being leaked or exfiltrated in a, in a malicious way. Um, whether that's an insider doing that, right? someone turning against the company and, and exfiltrating data in some way, or whether someone hacks into the systems and then steals the data. So it's, it's both times, it's data that leaks. And we're focusing very much on the intersection of when the users access the critical data. So how can we characterize that interaction and really learn how does data move around? How do people touch their critical data? And so then when either one happens, a malicious insider or an external attacker coming in, we'll see deviations in that behavior and hopefully be able to catch them there when they basically right in the act there. And then that's something that a lot of the, the global CISOs that we talk to are really worried about. Their intellectual property, And whether that's in the end espionage or whether it's an insider,
1: uh, it's in in the end, it's the same thing that we're looking for. I've seen some kind of like recent numbers on just like the cybersecurity market in general right now is like, essentially, you could make a pretty good argument that it's like 25% funded, (laughs) like, you know, like, there's like so much that needs to be done. Mm -hmm. And it's just something that people just historically have not invested nearly enough into. It's interesting. I guess you could also look at it in a different way. You could say
2: we spent trillions of dollars to protect our systems and data, and where are we?
1: Yeah, right. Yeah, it's
2: like indeed, it's, yeah. It's it's crazy, and and I feel like there's there's a number of technologies out there that companies just feel they have to buy them and deploy mm-hmm. them we can get in a religious war, but threat intelligence is one of them where you're buying these threat intelligence feeds that tell you these are all the bad IP addresses in the, in, in the internet. You should never connect to one of those because they're bad websites or bad machines, whatever. If you look at the return on that, it's actually not great, but everybody mm-hmm. feels like they need to have it. The question really becomes as a chief security officer, well, what technologies do you have to, do you need to invest and in to keep your organization secure? And that's again where we're trying to, turn the table a little bit to say, you know what? Sure, we call it sort of security hygiene. Sure, you need to do that, right? Some threat intelligence is important. We, we, we help you with our firewalls to protect yourself from botnets and things like that. But in the end, it comes back to what I mentioned earlier. It's, it's really about, well, once someone is in, hopefully we caught them, but if they're in and now start modifying your critical data, stealing your critical data, or, or messing with the availability of, of your systems—that's where we want to catch them, and that's a little bit of a smaller surface we have to monitor and understand than everything that's going on. Yeah, right? and and that's I think the security industry needs a little bit of a, a shakeup and, and maybe a, a cleaning to start focusing on the stuff that really matters and, and not then helping these CISOs not to waste money.
1: Yeah, I mean, with bring your own device with all this stuff. I mean, I'm, I'm curious, like you know, the level of threats seems like, or the level of your exposure or, you know, devices and all those things, it just seems like it's going to get exponentially worse and worse. Like, it doesn't seem like that's something that we can, the cat is out of the bag. So if that's the case, then what do you do? And it's exactly it, right? Like you, you will, we just won't be able to control
2: everything. And from that perspective, if you can get a handle on the critical data in your organization, uh, or the things, call it resources that you really care about, right? And in certain or um, verticals, you are really worried about your manufacturing line, right? Like that could cannot be touched. That always has to be up, and so on. So get really tight control around that. Make sure that all your connections to that from the rest of the network, from the internet, and so on, are really highly monitored. But obviously, you have to first sort of understand what's even there, right? You know. know Oh, there is, there is this other way in here to the manufacturing. Line. There's not just one entry point, but there's two. Yeah. Uh, so for first of all, understanding that having a lay of the land and then starting to protect where it really matters, I think is is really key.
1: What are some examples that you've seen kind of recently that are, I don't want to say like newer versions of the problem manifesting, but. Um, some examples that maybe you've seen from, I know you can't, you need to anonymize customers and all that, but, um, I'm curious, like some, some things that you, that you saw that you were particularly like, like, wow, that's, that's kind of a new thing. Oh, that's a good question. We we see so many
2: old problems wrapped in, in, in a new container. There's so many, I mean, it was just last week was Black Hat and DEF CON, two of the largest security conferences in the world, back to back in Vegas and walking around there listening to what's going on it's some of the talks are, are super scary right and uh, I feel like the attackers are finding more and more ways and some of them are super sophisticated how to get into the systems but I mean that that's never going to stop right and I will there's always a new story there's tomorrow something new and someone de- finds a way to circumvent this other, safeguard that we just put in right like like when we came out with facial recognition for phones um well it took i don't know how long a week or two and someone broke it already and they built something that could imitate you right like everything we put out there the attackers will find a way in and sometimes yeah. it's intellectually incredibly interesting and and amazing how they found out how to break into these systems um we can spend so many resources on that i could have a research team of 400 people doing nothing else than investigating the latest thing. And there is security companies that do that, but I'm always gonna be behind, right? Because if, if I haven't seen it yet, I, I can't analyze it. And so that's exactly that shift that I'm talking about where sure, there's there might be some really cool new attack that just figured out how to break iPhones or whatever it is, we'll always have one more. And there's gonna be another story tomorrow in the news, but how can we shift that to start saying, you know what? We didn't know about this attack, but we're still pretty confident we're secure from what happens afterwards when they're really trying to, to steal the,
1: the crown jewels. What do you, what is your team focused on if they're not focusing on those type of, you know, how they get in the door? So there's some of that, right? We're
2: looking at, obviously, we need to set the bar high enough that people don't just, just walk in, right? Yeah, so you yeah. have to have some kind of offense. Um, but after that, we're focusing a lot on understanding human behavior. And as I mentioned earlier, we have a psychologist on the team, for example, where we built a framework that helps us understand, well, what are the things about a person that I can characterize that are relevant to assess their risk afterwards? Right? A very simple example, she actually gave a talk at Black Hat this year talking about curiosity. And that's a very, it's maybe not the very best attribute of a person that you can characterize, but I think it brings the point across really well. It's like the, the more curious someone is, they might actually expose themselves to a number of attacks like phishing. Well, if you're a very curious person, you cannot resist clicking that link. right? Yeah, totally. um, and so if I can characterize that. But
1: the prince is, has a million dollars for you. But, it's, oh, right?
2: my God. I just got another one yesterday and it was someone had incriminate, incriminating pictures of me and this
1: and that, oh. and I'm like, whoa, okay. The IRS tells me, well, it calls me all the time. <laughs> I'm I, don't sure if the, I, I don't know if the IRS is calling from Iowa. It just doesn't seem like it makes sense. Or they're calling from my hometown. That's that's my new favorite. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. yeah they,
2: that's the thing, right? They, these attackers get sophisticated, right? And they're tricking you in any way. And so we're focusing on what are the attributes that I can measure about a person, their curiosity, their stressors, right? If if you had um, if someone pushes your buttons, right? Understanding what your buttons are, and understanding how can we even gather that data to understand when your buttons are or what your buttons are, and then when they're getting pushed, and then sort of applying that risk to you when you're doing certain things. And if I know you are a curious person, then I might look at the emails that you get even closer to make sure that there's no link in there that you could click, right? Yeah. Versus a person that's super careful, never is not curious at all, right? They're super conservative, then I might apply different um, safeguards basically. And so that's that's one huge area to this human factors research. And then the second piece to that is, security has been traditionally in this world of zero and one. You're either allowed to do something or you're blocked. And it just doesn't work, yeah. right? Um, that's where you get into problems of having humongous lists of policies that you don't even understand anymore. What happens? And what we're doing is we're shifting that to a risk-based conversation. So that I say, you know, I saw you doing these five things. You suddenly showed up from an IP in China. You have a very strange browser that you're using. Uh, you're, you're trying to access data you have never accessed before. Each of these. Signals alone might not be that bad, right? I might be traveling to China and it's completely fine to have to be coming from there. I might be using a computer at the hotel, but now I'm going to the critical data. Um, I'm accessing weird folders. Mm-hmm. I, I do all these things and suddenly it's like, hang on, now the risk is too high. This is not you. So then rather than blocking you completely, I might not let you to get to the critical business files anymore. I might still let you browse the, the web or browse to our public website, right? But I might also use more monitoring. So so we call this risk adaptive protection where we basically focus everything around risk rather than zero one decisions.
1: That's like uh when I was in school we couldn't go to uh dicksportinggoods.com because it was like Dick's, <laughs> yeah, <exactly>. dicks.com <laughs> Yeah. Uh, or whatever. But the same sort of thing, right? It's like, oh hey, you know, you're traveling and immediately your credit card shut off yes. and you're like, now I can't buy gas. This exactly. is not, this is not great. Are there things that you've seen from an employee experience standpoint, where this has had either a really positive effect or negative effect? Yeah, this this is huge. We
2: actually, in in, in one of our slogans, we say free the good, (laughs) right? Like, I think the security industry, security products got a very bad rep because we always block you. We're always preventing you from getting work done, right? And you get annoyed. Well, we wanna get out of the way as much as we can, right? Like, don't just block things. Um, but go into this risk-based approach where maybe certain things you can't do anymore. And so that I think that's really, really key. We can't be in the way of the user's activities. And, and security has gotten a really bad rep in that sense. So that's just key where the, the experience of the user should not be impacted by security tools. And if it is, then that the tool is not doing what it should
1: be doing. And then how do you, you know, I'll say politely, but how do you how do you politely recommend that people are not doing something. I mean, I, I kind of feel like most people don't want to go down a harmful path right. in, you know, the vast yeah. majority of use cases. And it's like, they just need a nudge of like, do you realize you're doing something dumb? I mean, there. this is also where you can get really creative, right? I, I've seen
2: um, approaches in companies where instead of in your web browsing, sometimes you get the, the block page from your web yeah. browser says so you can't go here, right? Um, you can do that And for certain things, you want to do that, right? Certain content, you just know that's not something that anyone should go through at work. But then in other cases, you could just say, hey, you are the first person ever in the entire (laughs) organization of 10,000 people (laughs) to go to this website. Are you sure you want to go there? Right. That's hilarious. And it's actually very effective because then you're like, well, A, they're looking at what I'm doing, right? Yeah. They're recommending, I might not want to go here. And I have another chance to verify, is it really the right URL? Is it really where I want to go? And then I can still say, oh, uh, just kidding. <laughs> Let me not go there, right? So there's there's all kinds of creative ways that you can work with the user rather than just preventing them to do things. But The users
1: are not, as you were saying, they're not always just malicious, right? Like I think working with the user is actually really key. Well, it's also like, you know, you drop a letter off a domain and you end up somewhere you shouldn't, right? I mean, exactly like, that exactly, happens right. all the time. Exactly, right. Um, and then they're probably going to be embarrassed anyways. Uh, <laughs> so who writes that copy? I mean, like, who, are, is, is your team working on that stuff? Like, had those little nudges?
2: Um, for certain products, like uh, even on, on the DLP side, the data leak prevention tool, right? Sometimes just having another check where a lot of the tools today, I send a document, one of the exfiltration use cases is always that the employee sends data or an attachment to their personal email account because that's how they exfiltrate data. Totally. To Gmail or my accounts. Well, rather than just recording that and the security team is going to run after that, you can just pop up a dialogue and say, hey, did you realize you're just sending this attachment to your personal email account? Are you sure that's okay with the security policy of the company? And then they can still decide, yeah, I want to do that. It's fine or no. And so there's all kinds of different places where we're trying to insert these little nudges because just letting it happen and, and recording it is sometimes not really good anyways because you have so many alerts suddenly. I mean, how many times does that happen? Seriously. And the security team just can't work on all this. So I'd rather put that in the face of the user and, and they realize, oh, I'm actually being watched and I should probably not try anything more. Because the the event is still recorded, right? And I can still go in and um, review that or send it to the manager and if it it happens 10 times in in a month. There's all kinds of interesting things you can do that don't
1: always have to just be a zero or one decision that way. You wrote two books earlier in your career, Applied Security Visualization and The Security Data Lake. Weighty Tomes, you say. (laughs) 500 pages. Well, that was the first book, yeah. The second was only like 40 or so. (laughs) So, you know, flash forward to now. I'm I'm curious um, what has changed about, you know, data visualization. What are you seeing now? You know, data visualization is interesting. I I tried to start a company at some
2: point to build sort of a visual analytics tool that would, the vision was just, I have all this data. I have have a terabyte of data. I give you that and I ask you what's in here. And the tool should just help you explore that and, and say, look, here's what I see and guide me through the data and everything in a visual way. And nothing has changed in the last 10 years, right? We can process larger amounts of data. We can run these machine learning algorithms and this and that. But I haven't seen a tool that really I just load the data and it helps me explore and understand what is really happening inside of here. Um, we definitely have gotten to to higher scale, to more nodes and edges on a display and things like that. But, but fundamentally, the problem of Making data actionable, we haven't really done that much on that. Yeah. Um visualization is also a hard part because often it's it's to explore the data. But once I explored it, I don't want to do another visualization of it. I want to automate that stuff. So, so how many times do I really go and do the visual exploration? Of course, there's also another side of visualization, which is data representation or communication, right? In dashboards and summaries and so on. That's interesting, but to a certain degree, right? Everybody has seen dashboards and you use Tableau or something and do a little bit of investigation. But the visual analytics component really, really deeply understand the data. That's, I'm still super passionate about it. I haven't been able to work on it much recently, but I think there's still lots of work to be done there.
1: I I actually wanted to ask you about your multi-time founder, (laughs) which is, uh, you know, I feel like we have folks that, that do startups and then back in enterprise and kind of back and forth. But I'm I'm curious, like, what were those experiences like, and kind of how does that help you in your current role? It was um, roller coaster, yeah, incredible, um, amazing,
2: frustrating. It's been everything. Uh, I got super lucky. I um, found a company called Logly right out of Splunk. We're like, why don't we put this thing into the cloud? And <laughs> we we were like, you know, Splunk. Shouldn't put it in the cloud because the business model just wouldn't make any sense. So we have it. We have a shot here. Yeah, and it was fantastic. We, we raised VC money, and back in the day like when we started it, I didn't know what an MVP was or yeah. what a pivot is or whatever. And I remember I, um, we got lucky and got funding by True Ventures, and we got into this startup community. All the founders, and suddenly we got exposed to this whole new world. And it was absolutely incredible. The connections, understanding the business side of things, much better. Really focusing on customer, right? Like There you live it every day. In a bigger company, you can get away with not thinking about the customer too much. But in the startup, you need to make money at some point. So definitely learned a tremendous amount. And, you know, it also helped burst a bubble a little bit. I think living in the Bay Area, a lot of people that come here, they're like, oh my God, all these startups and everybody makes so much money and everybody's a successful entrepreneur. Well, it's actually not true, right? Yeah, like big time. Yep. Y- you dig in and you're like, every, a lot of people had a failure and sometimes it's pretty bad, right? Like, yeah. like where you feel sorry for them, what happened? The like founders not getting along and investors and founders and like this, this, you hear everything, right? And it was super interesting to, to see that side as well and getting a little bit of a perspective. And, and it's interesting because a lot of people ask me, it's like, oh, you started companies and, and all these things. Why are you in a 3,000 people company now? Yeah, <laughs> I'm like, guess what? I have a lot of resources available to yep. me, right? Um, I I make okay money, right? I have much less risk. I don't have to live on the hope that my startup is gonna succeed and, and bring in a lot of money and, and hope that I didn't get diluted too much by the VCs and all these other things. There's there's obviously other things that are sometimes annoying, right? Like in a bigger company, you have politics going on here and there. But but it's it it's part of the course, right? It's, it's just where do you put your 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 emphasis? And I have to say, I'm I'm really happy with where I am and, and with the balance that I can strike in, in these different things. Yeah, I mean it's
1: it's interesting to hear, you know, being able to kind of be that entrepreneur and leading something like X Lives where it is kind of that company within a company scenario. Do you, do you feel like you, you use some of those principles to try to focus on the business and make sure that, you know, you run your business unit like a business and things like that? Oh, my, uh, my boss and my CEO wouldn't be happy with me
2: if I were not. They're yeah. asking me all the time, yep. what are these resources doing? Like, how do you make this lean and, and optimal and automate? And like, we were constantly having a business
1: conversation. There's just no way around it. What do you think the role of AI and machine learning will play in kind of the future security analytics data visualization hmm. all that loaded question but
2: yeah it's interesting i have so many conversations about ai and initially i resisted really hard to jump on this ai bandwagon i was like ai doesn't exist and i'm still pretty adamant, like AGI, the generic intelligence, we don't have that yet, right? And it's probably going to be a while, and it's more of a philosophical question when that's going to happen. And Ray Kurzweil has probably a better answer than me. AI, people really use it as a synonym to to analytics, right? Yeah. And, and sometimes they use it as a synonym to machine learning, and generally supervised machine learning. So that that's a really big topic everybody talks about. I think we have had incredible success with a number of these algorithms that they huge advances that we were able to make right deep learning has definitely catapulted a number of different areas very very far where things we haven't been able to do before um but i, I have a feeling that we are over-rotating again on this where we feel like machine learning is going to solve everything if we just have to write data and it will it will, it will answer all our questions and that's just not true and i'm actually seeing a trend where I gave a talk last year at Black Hat where I talked about the dangers of algorithms. Mm-hmm. And I just showed that what we're doing today, a, a developer can download a library for a machine learning tool set. They can run it on the data and then get a result. And often, that's what happens. And they're like, running around is the result that we just came up with. And you put that into critical systems, and th- that's how the system works in the end. Well when you actually dig in, you realize, well, there's different parameters you can set for that algorithm. The developer never looked at them, has no idea what the black box just did. And I was showing some examples of how, when if you just start uh, changing these, these parameters, you get completely different results. And and this is really dangerous. We're, we're running systems based on those kinds of approaches. And so I think we need to be a little careful on on how we're using these things. And it's not just educating developers and, and sort of making sure that they're using the algorithms in the right way and that it's statistically sound and all these things. It's also understanding the data better, right? Where are the biases from the data all the way to the interpretation? People seem to be kind of ignoring that and just like, oh, you know, it's helping us in so many ways. We don't really care. But especially in security, that can be actually fatal in the end. And and that's something I feel pretty strongly about, that we need to emphasize and have those conversations. and. Yeah, so making
1: sure that we're using those things right. So what technologies are you most excited about going forward? What what stuff at Forcepoint and uh and X Labs are you particularly uh, you know, jumping at the bit here?
2: There's there's a number of different efforts going on. Um lots of new versions of products coming, lots of research that we're working on right now. I'm I'm super excited to once we have all that research sort of production ready to start rolling it out and then seeing the results, right? As, as researchers, you often we're trying to gather as much data as we can to build our models and, and test them out. But then once you deploy it to production and, and you start seeing what actually happens with those models in, 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 in the big, wide world out there and in customer environments, that's when it gets interesting I and mean, we start seeing the nuances and see where we actually catch some of the interesting um, say the data leakages or whatever use cases we're implementing. So that's, that's going to be super exciting to start rolling some of these things out. Uh, Getting deeper into understanding human behavior, that's been super fun and and getting from talking about it to really the implementations is is a lot of the focus right now. So I'm quite excited to see that happening.
1: All right, let's get into the lightning round. These questions are fast and easy. Just like the lightning platform from Salesforce, you go to salesforce.com slash employee experience to learn more about lightning fast employee experience on the world's number one CRM. Lightning round questions. Are you ready? I'm sure. I'm a little scared. <laughs> As you should be. Now you're in great hands here. Number one, what app are you using on your phone that is the most fun? Most fun, uh, Boggle. What is your favorite vacation
2: spot? I still have to go there. Looking forward to go to the Maldives, hopefully sometime soon to
1: Scuba. Favorite use of AI or chatbots that you've seen recently? None. <laughs> Favorite book or podcast that you've read or listened to recently? Obviously, very excited to start digging to into the mission uh, hey, podcasts more. Now we're talking. <laughs> what about what do you do for fun? Um, depends a little bit. Um, I'll say swimming. Swimming still? Need, still do any target shooting? No,
2: no not really. Um, it's the, the crossbow air rifle that I was shooting was, was quite elaborate in terms of the equipment yeah. and the, the shooting range and everything. I haven't really found a range here that would even do it.
1: That's crazy. Um,
2: What's the distance like? It's 10 or 30 meters. Oh, wow. So 10 meters, the target is, is a half a millimeter. So it's the tip of a needle that's really the bullseye. And you have to hit that. Jeez. <laughs> What's your favorite time-saving tool? Whoa. Time-saving I take a lot of notes and have a lot of checklists. So um, I just discovered, what is it, ClickUp, I think, Hmm. just to like sort of take uh, like
1: checklists and stuff. I I quite enjoy that. Best advice for a chief research and intelligence officer? You're only as good
2: as your people are. And I think that's true everywhere. It's invest in the people and make sure that they also sort of bounce off of each other because everybody has different backgrounds. And I have data scientists that have no security background. I have security people that have no data science background. So making them work together is, has been a
1: good formula. What about, what question do you never get asked that you wish you were asked more often? Ah, well, you know
2: what? It's interesting. Um, obviously people can't see this, but I'm wearing mala beads. Yeah. Um, And I've been wearing them for probably six, seven years. Like I don't leave the house without them. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting how little I get asked about them. I'm not sure if people are just scared of asking a religious question or a potentially religious question, but that's probably the question. Why why do I wear malas? Yeah, why do you? (laughs) Well, um, I have a a Zen meditation practice for about the last 10 years. I'm not sitting every day for like a half an hour and like uh, I'm not quite that... um, determined, I guess, but it's been a very in, important companion on, on my, on my journey in life. And it's been really nice to have a philosophy to come back to that helps you deal with all kinds of different situations. It's very much in line with what we talked about earlier, sort of the shooting. It's an individual sport and you learn certain things about yourself. Zen is, is very similar in sort of teaching you certain aspects of, of life and providing some tools for
1: that. So, Awesome. This has been great, man. Thanks for coming on the show. Any any final thoughts here? No, this has been super fun. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you guys hiring? Yeah, anybody open recs on the team? Oh yeah, I think I have about five different open recs. So from um, security analysts to data scientists, uh, yeah, look me up. Yeah, we'll we'll, uh, we'll put your uh, Twitter and LinkedIn in the show notes here. Thanks for coming on. This is awesome. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.
0: IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform.